0: There were a group of people that had been enslaved for hundreds of years named the Israelites. Generation after generation, they had dwelt in the slavery of Egypt, and they had the promise of God of, of a deliverer of a land, of something that was to come that was greater than they were currently experiencing. And then God raised up Moses. And Moses was on the backside of the desert for years. Moses had tried to bring a deliverance for the Israelites in his own strength, and it went bad, and he was an outcast. And on the backside of the wilderness, God met Moses. And God had an encounter with Moses and said, No, you're, you're the one that I've chosen to carry the message. It's just... You need to do it my way instead of your way. And you're going to go back to Egypt and you're going to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. I've heard their cries. It's time for me to deliver them. It is time for them to go to the land that I promised back to Abraham. And in that context, Moses is asking, remember, this is the book of Exodus. This is very early on in history, before we have all of the names of of God that we, we know now. And so Moses says, okay, so when I go back to tell these people that, that God has sent me to deliver them, what name do I give them? Who do I tell them you are, the one that has sent me? How do I refer to you when I'm talking to these people? And I want to look in Exodus chapter 3 for just a minute because we need to understand this before we move into Revelation. So here is Moses Meeting with God, saying, what do I tell these people when they ask who sent me? And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 10, it says, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, that's God said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you. That I've sent you, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Remember that. And they did. They went back to that mountain. Then Moses said to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What happens here in uh, Exodus chapter 3 verse 14 is God uh, takes the Hebrew verb that we most often translate as I am. And he repeats it, uh, hayah asher hayah and he repeats it twice there with a the conjunction in the middle and it's in the cow imperfect which what God is saying is if you want to know who is sending you or the people want to know just tell them it is the eternal pre-existent the unchanging God that simply is in essence what God is saying is you There's not a category, there is not a name, there is not a descriptor that you have that you could give to them that completely defines who I am. I am who I am, and what I am is beyond your ability to fully comprehend or describe. Now, with that understanding in Exodus chapter 3, let's turn to Revelation 1, show you how these relate. And I've titled today's sermon, Transcendent. Transcendent. Especially for you kids, that's a $5 word. I know y'all just use that all the time, right? Throw transcendent around everywhere. What that has to do with is, in Latin, the word, the root of the word transcendent is transcendentum. And it means to rise above. So Think of Mount Everest. Mount Everest is the highest mountain peak rising above sea level. It rises further above sea level than any other place on earth. Many people have died trying to climb Mount Everest. But there are a few select people in this world that have made it to the top. They have made it to the peak of Mount Everest. And those that have accomplished such a feat, they are separated from. They have risen above. They are far above Anyone else in their category. In fact, they have accomplished something that very few people in all of human history would ever accomplish. In other words, they've transcended to some degree what the rest of us would ever be able to do. Multiply that many fold. (laughs) God is the transcendent one in that he is eternal he is I am who I am. He's always been, he will always be. He is the transcendent one in that he is not bound by anything. You can't box God in and say, here he is. He is I am who I am. God, God is not a God who ever wearies or grows tired or faints. He is not a God who is ever lacking where he needs someone to bring something to him, to add to him. He is the self-sufficient God who says, I am who I am. I'm the transcendent one. And we're going to talk about why that is hope for us today. But what I wanted to do is I want to pick up in Revelation 1, verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 3, which we studied last week, and then we'll pick up in verse 4. There were two things I missed last week, and that's going to be my problem every week through Revelation, uh, is is all the stuff that I'm trying to cram in week after week. But verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must, we didn't talk much about that word last week, must, the things which what? Must, shortly take place. In other words, God has the events of the book of Revelation marked on his calendar. It is the next event on God's calendar, and it must take place. It is imminent. It is sure to happen. It will happen at any moment. God is going to say, now is the time. It must take place, and he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. Again, we have God the Father Giving the message to Christ, who gave it to an angel, who gave it to John for us. Who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. We talked about how this is the first of seven Beatitudes, seven blessings that are pronounced throughout the book of Revelation. But one thing that separates the book of Revelation apart from every other book in the Bible is this is the only book of the Bible that pronounces a blessing on those who read, hear, and obey it. Now, all of God's Word, that's true of all of God's Word. If you read through the Psalms and you read through other places in Scripture, they talk about how God's Word is inspired. And as we heed God's Word, we will know God's blessing. So that principle is correct to apply to all of Scripture. But this is the only book in the Bible that starts out by saying, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you hear this and you read it and you do what it says, you will be blessed. Now, picking up in verse 4... John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. He's writing to seven literal churches that existed in history. And we'll look at who those seven churches were in the coming weeks. And he says, which are in Asia. He's not talking about the continent of Asia. He's talking about the province, the Roman province of Asia Minor that was under the rule of Rome. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. This would be modern day Turkey. Is around where these churches are located, or the uh, cities that these churches were located in. Grace to you and peace from Him who was and who who is and who was and who is to come. This is a traditional greeting: "Grace to you and peace." Used in many epistles, Paul's epistles. You see, grace uh, and peace. Grace, kind of a Greek term. Peace, going back to Hebrew roots. Grace and peace to you. From him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. We're going to stop there for just a minute. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now what does that have to do with Exodus that we just read? Well, the way that the Greek is constructed here in verse 4, what's happening is it's actually pointing back to Exodus 3 verse 14. And this is the same God that met with Moses and said, I am who I am, is the same God of Revelation 1-4, the God of the beginning in Exodus is the God here that's bringing it all to an end, and he is the God who was, who is, and who is to come. And that expression of God is found throughout the book of Revelation. You see angels, the elders, others before his throne, and that's how they praise him, It is obvious that it's of God the Father, but it is also used of Jesus, we'll see. And it is not setting a boundary line. It's not like saying this is who God is. It is saying God is, he's the one, he's the I am who I am. He's the one who always has been, he always will be. But yet, here's where it bears upon us. He's present right now. He's not only transcendent and that is beyond time and eternity, he is imminent. He is inbreaking in that he is near. He's not only the God who was and who will be, he is the God who is. And he is here for you today. That brings us to our first point this morning the transcendence of God it gives us hope for today. He's never failed and he never will. I don't want to trust in a God that really I can fully understand. Because if I can fully understand him, that means he's pretty limited because I'm pretty limited. I, I may know a lot about some things, but there's a whole lot of other things I'm very foolish and I don't understand. So if I could understand all that God is, he must be pretty small. But we have a God that defies my ability to even be able to understand the fullness of who he is, and that's very good news. This transcendent God is not bound by time. He never runs out of energy. He doesn't need a Snickers, right? He doesn't get hangry. He doesn't run out of steam. He doesn't run out of resources. He's transcendent, and that's hope for us because he's never failed and he never will. He has thousands of years Of a track history, being faithful to his word. And that's the God that we hope in, and that's our hope for today. It's great that he's transcendent because he's able to also be in breaking. He's also able to be imminent. He's also able to be present in my life. And there's nothing in my life that will be beyond him. Think about Moses. God said, you're going to worship me back on this mountain. This is a sign. I'm going to bring you back here. And that's exactly, if you continue reading through the book of Exodus, that's exactly what happened. What about David? If you fast forward a little bit through biblical history, God had Samuel anoint David as king in a kind of a secret ceremony there among his father's house and his brethren where God chose him. But David went from there back to Herding, tending the flocks and the sheep, and then he defeated Goliath, but he still wasn't king. And then he spent years hiding from Saul, who was king, and all the while God had promised him, You're my guy, you're gonna be king. But day after day, month after month, year after year, it had not been fulfilled. Had God ceased to be faithful? Was God being cruel? Was God playing a trick on David? No, God was fulfilling his word because the time did come that David was anointed king. And he brought in the what's called the golden age of Israel. He brought the nation to fear and to love and to follow God like no other king had before or did since. What about even fast forward a lot further to New Testament times, Apostle Peter You see, God's transcendence, his ability to understand and to know all things, to never have anything beyond him, that's good news for us because he's faithful, and he's been faithful for thousands of years. He was faithful to Moses, he was faithful to David, to many other characters throughout the word. He was faithful to Peter, even in this way. He told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. But when you have returned, go and strengthen your brethren. Here's the amazing thing about the grace of God. Jesus looked at Peter, knowing Peter would fail him, and said, You're gonna fail me. You're gonna fail me miserably. And I know that, and I'm still gonna die for you. But I also know, Peter, that you're gonna repent. And when you've repented, go and you find your brethren and you bring them back together and you encourage them and you strengthen them. And guess what happened? Peter failed miserably, (laughs) but Peter repented and then Peter was restored and became one of the greatest leaders of the early church. God knows what he's doing. God keeps his word and he has a track history for thousands of years of being the transcendent God that does not fail His people. And that's our hope for today. And that's the vision of God that Revelation is starting out with. He's the one who was and is and is to come. He is, I am, who I am. And then if you go back to verse 4, He's also the one, He was and He is and is to come. But this message of grace and peace is also, it says, from the seven spirits who are before His throne. From the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, if you, most Bibles have the word spirits capitalized there. They, most commentators believe that that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And so, what's happened is the English translators moving from Greek to English have made that a capital S. It's not a capital S in the Greek. They've made that a capital S because they believe that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. I don't think that's right. Um, Let's look at this for just a minute. Why would you think it's the Holy Spirit? Well, look at Isaiah chapter 11 for just a minute. I told you I don't think it's right to get your attention. Now you're listening, aren't you? Isaiah chapter 11. I'm kind of tricky like that sometimes. I've been doing this for a few years. Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 and 2. Why would you think it's the Holy Spirit? This is one of the key texts that people point to to say it's uh, the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 11 is a prophecy about Jesus 600 years before he came on uh, the scene, stepping down to earth, taking on the flesh of man. Isaiah 11 says this, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This is a Obvious reference to Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that would rest upon him. And the way that the Holy Spirit is described in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord, that's one. Spirit. These are There are seven descriptors. Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Spirit of wisdom, that's two. Understanding, it's the Spirit of understanding, that's three. Spirit of counsel, that's four. A Spirit of might, that's five. Spirit of knowledge, that's six. And the spirit of the fear of the Lord, that's seven. So what people believe from passages like this, and a few select others is that Revelation 1 4 is talking when it says the seven spirits. Seven in the book of Revelation is the number of perfection. Six is just falling short of perfection. So seven is that number of perfection. So they're saying it's the sevenfold spirit of God. It is a Holy Spirit who is perfect. It is perfect and holy God. The seven spirits is a reference to Isaiah. 11 to the sevenfold spirit of god a lot of godly people have held to that i'm not convinced of that though because in the book of revelation angels are used throughout the book of revelation to fulfill god's purposes and there are seven literal angels standing before the throne of god throughout the book of revelation i want to look at one passage and we won't camp out on this for very long some of you really get into this stuff and some of you don't, but I want to touch on it. Revelation chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. Revelation 8, beginning at verse 1. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then I saw seven, what? Angels who stood where? Before God. And to them were given seven trumpets. And another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense, that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. So where are the seven angels? They're before the throne of God. And the smoke of the incense with the, was the, with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound, What you see through the book of Revelation over and over and over again is there are literal angels before the throne of God that are sent out to do his bidding throughout the book of Revelation. Throughout the events that will take place, God is using angels to carry out his judgments. So back to Revelation 1-4, we translate it as seven spirits. So you're saying, well, that's not an angel. Well, yes, angels are actually referred to in Scripture as spirits. Hebrews 1, verses, if you want to go back and double-check me later, be like the Bereans, make sure what I'm saying is right. If you go back and look at Hebrews 1, verses 7 and verse 14, it says, aren't angels ministering spirits? So there's absolutely a precedent for angels being called spirits. So I believe what's happening here. Is that if we look at verse 4, he says, John, to the seven churches, those were seven literal churches, which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. And from the seven literal, I don't think he jumps from literal to figurative here, literal again, seven spirits, seven angels who were before his throne that we see later in the book of Revelation. Now, people want to impose a Trinitarian formula here to say we have the Father, then we have the Holy Spirit, and then later you see the Son. Look, there are many passages to preach on the Trinity. I just don't think it's right here. And so he's saying the seven spirits who are before his throne. And then go to verse 5. And and I could be wrong, okay? But that's what I think. Verse 5. And from Jesus Christ. Now, look how Jesus is. Look how he's explained to us, how he's presented to us. The faithful witness. When Jesus was before Pilate, and all of the trials and everything was going on, and, and he's talking, uh, uh, Pilate's trying to press him and really find out who he is. Jesus says, I came to bear witness to the truth. Pilate says, ah, what is truth? And he gets frustrated. Jesus is the faithful witness. He came to tell us the truth about who we are, about who God is, about what he came to do. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the faithful witness. Second, he's the firstborn from the dead. For those of you that were here with us through the book of Colossians, you saw especially in Colossians 1 that when it says Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, it means that Jesus is the first to have resurrected, never to die again. So it speaks of his first place, but it also speaks of a place of prominence and honor. The firstborn was the one that got the largest inheritance. It was a place of honor in an ancient family. So Jesus is not only the faithful witness, he's the firstborn from the dead. He is the first who resurrected never to die again, but he also holds a place of priority and prestige and honor. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and look at this, the ruler over the kings of the earth. Man, there's a lot of messed up kingdoms right now in this world, aren't there? So you wonder, where is Jesus in all of that? He is bringing it all to his end. But he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then it says to him who loved us, and I'm sorry, we're going to actually stop there for just a minute. The ruler of the kings of the earth. Because what I want to do, I, I'm trying to select passages to make sure that you understand how they relate. I want to look really quick at Psalm 89. Look at Psalm 89 because I want you to see how these relate to this description of Jesus. There's a lot we could look at in Psalm 89 that relate to these descriptions of Jesus we just got. But I just want to look at a couple verses. Psalm 89, verses 24 through 29. 84, 24 through 29. Because again, what's happening is (laughs) Revelation is the 66th book of the Bible. So if you want to understand the last book of the Bible, you need to understand the first 65. So what I'm trying to do each week is to give you some glimpses into some of the things that you need to have To really understand the imagery of the book of Revelation. So, Psalm 89, verse 24 reads this But my faithfulness and my mercy shall be with him. He's um, speaking of this messianic figure, and in my name his horn shall be exalted. Also, I will set up his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever in his throne as the days of heaven. Again, how Jesus is being lifted up, exalted, presented to us in Revelation, it's not arbitrary. It's not just some random grouping of words. It is God taking things from the 65 books that went before and showing us how Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. He is the faithful witness. He is the firstborn from the dead. So many scriptures we could go to for that. And the ruler of the king's Of the earth. Now, that's who he is. Note what he does. There's three main verbs here that I want you to key in on, and then we're going to give you our second point. Look what Jesus did to him who loved us. And then what's the second thing he did? He washed us from our sins in his own blood. And then the third, and has made us kings and priests. We're going to come back to that. To his God, the Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Three verbs. And I think that they are, in a sense, climactic. They're building on one another. But they're all three in the aorist tense. The best way to explain that is if you're taking a picture of something, an event that's taken place, you take a picture of it, then what you have is a snapshot of a completed event, a completed moment in time. Sometimes that completed moment of time bears on the present. In the perfect tense, it it pretty much always bears on the present. But sometimes with the aorist, it is bearing on the present. But the aorist is a completed event. It's speaking to something that has taken place. It's done, and that is so important for us to understand because it's saying he's loved us. The love of God has taken place. It's still taking place. But the love of God has happened. Jesus loves us, and in his love, he's done something. Love is known by what it does, so he's loved us. And what has he done? He's washed us. And what has he washed us from? Our sins. But what has he washed us with? His blood. He's loved us, Erist. He's washed us. It's taken place. He's died, never to die again. Do you understand the significance of that? He looks at us and he says, I see every way you will ever fail me. And I'm going to die for it. And in my death, you'll be forgiven of it. He's loved us. He's washed us in his blood. Whole sermon just on that. Third, and he's made us, heiress tense, made us. You right now, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then this verse is true of you. It's not becoming true of you. It is true of you now. There is more to come, but it is true of you now. He has made us, a better translation is a kingdom of priests. He has made us a kingdom of priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. From the youngest child to the oldest senior adult, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ right now, you are a kingdom of priests unto God for his glory forever and ever. Right now. But it doesn't matter if you feel like you are or not, God says he has done it. God's done it. He has made you that. We're gonna talk about what that means to our life in just a minute, but let me give you the second point here is this, the Son of God gives us purpose today. Gives us purpose today. If the transcendence of God gives us hope, the Son of God gives us purpose. Who Jesus is as the faithful witness and these things that we looked at and what he's done, how he's washed us in his blood and, and those things that we looked at, who he is and what he has done, it demands something of us today. We are different because of who he is, and we are commanded to be different because of what he has done. The Son of God gives us purpose today. Turn with me to the book of Exodus for just a minute. I want to set up what I mean by this, and then we're going to apply it more to your life. But I, I want you have to understand the background to it. So we had looked in Exodus 3 earlier. We saw how God was going to send Moses, Right? And God did send Moses, and Pharaoh eventually let the children of Israel go. So by Exodus 19, they've come back to the mountain. They're on Mount Sinai now. And this is a dramatic moment in the history of Israel, in the history of the world, in the history of covenants, because what has happened is God has brought his people out like he promised he would. He brought them to this mountain. Now his presence comes on the mountain. The mountain is shaking. Lightning thunders the presence of God. If they want to know where is God, all they have to do is look up. And they're like, there's God. He's right there. And God is coming to meet with his people in power, and holiness. And the people are afraid. They tell Moses, we're not going up that mountain. You go. You tell us what he wants. We're too afraid to draw near to God. And in his holiness and in his mountain-shaking power, he looks at his feeble and his weak people. And look at what he says in Exodus 19, verse 6. And you shall be to me. To me, God says. That's a relationship. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. (laughs) God just told these people, You're going to be to me a kingdom of priests. What did the people do days later? They made an image of a golden calf. They forgot God, and they bowed down, and they worshiped the calf. Did God know that when he said, you're going to be to me a kingdom of priests? Yeah, he did. He knew that they were going to do that, but he still said, no, 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 you're going to be a kingdom of priests. You may fail me here, but that failure is not going to define you. I define you because you belong to me, and what I say is that you are a kingdom of priests, And if that is what I declare that you are, then that is what you are. And if that could be said of those sinful and rebellious people that side of the cross, how much more does God look at us and say, yes, I know your failure. Yes, I know your waywardness. Yes, I know what you've done. I know what you will do even before you know that you're going to do it. But I still look at you and I say that in my son, you have been made a kingdom of priests to serve me, that in you I might be glorified. Man, Pentecostal church would be falling out in the aisle right now. Y'all awake? Goodness. I'm going to start busting some in just so it'll get louder in here. A kingdom of priests. What did a priest do? A priest went to God and served God on behalf of the people. But the priest also brought God's word to the people. He was the intermediary. He was back and forth. Jesus is called our faithful high priest. Do you ever think of yourself that way? I mean, that's kind of, that kind of blows my mind to think of myself that way. And so here's the picture. This is what I'm driving towards here that every believer in Jesus Christ, we are a part of the family of God. And what God says is that you now are a part of a kingdom of priests, that your job, your assignment, your purpose in life now is defined by Jesus Christ. And what Jesus Christ is saying is, Candy Horton, you're a kingdom of priests to me. Doug Morgan, you're a kingdom of priests to me. Gina Hoyas, you are a kingdom of priests to me. Suzanne rubber you're a kingdom of priests to me. You are to serve me, John Cashmire. You're you are a kingdom of priests to me. Your identity, your purpose, all that you are, the breath that you have, the days that I give you in this life are not your own. You belong to me. And what I have made you for is to serve me as a kingdom of priest. That means that as we go about our life, we are to complete, we are to do what the nation of Israel failed to do. The nation of Israel was to be God's people, and as they went about their life, they were to make God known to the rest of the world. So fast forward thousands of years later to this side of the cross. You believer, you are fulfilling in Jesus Christ what Israel failed to do. Your assignment is to be a kingdom of priests, making God known wherever he puts you. That's the purpose of your life. That's it. Now you're catching on. So, children, does that apply to you at school? Yeah, it does. There's no greater calling on your life than to be a kingdom of priests in your school. You have people that you go to school with that have very broken homes they go home to abuse and neglect and all kinds of troubles. And you better be a representative of Jesus Christ to them in the school. That's your assignment, child. Those of you that are at work, man, we all have bad days, don't we? But can we at least be aware of the bad day that the coworker next to us may be having? I'll be a kingdom of priests to those that God puts in our sphere of influence. Some of you that are retired, one of the priestly functions was to make intercession on behalf of the people. Man, we need some people that spend their days praying. Wherever God has put you, whatever phase of life you're in, your purpose as a child of God in Jesus Christ is to be a kingdom of priests unto God For the glory of God the Father. That is your purpose. And there is no higher calling. But we need to conclude with our last two verses today. Verses 7 and 8. Behold. In other words, pay attention. Look, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Why are they going to mourn? Because they pierced him. Because they rejected him and now it's too late. Even so, amen. I am, the faithful, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. There is so much that happens here that we, we just, we're going to run out of time to cover today. But I want you to understand this image of Christ as he returns. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Turn with me to Daniel 7 for just a minute. You've got to have this. You can go and study it later. Daniel can be a little tricky to find. Go to the middle of your Bible, Psalm, start turning to the right. You'll see Isaiah, big book. Ezekiel, keep going a little bit. You'll find Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7 is one of the most key chapters, actually, in the whole Old Testament um, for understanding. uh, Well, it relates to excuse me, the book of Revelation more than just about any other Old Testament chapter, Daniel 7, it's amazing. But I just wanna read you one thing, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. There's an image of one who's going to come. God was showing Daniel the the end times, what was going to happen. Daniel had already gotten the vision of God the Father before the throne earlier in chapter 7. I'm not going to go to that, but just look at this one who's going to come. Verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. What was Jesus' favorite designation of himself? Son of Man. One like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven coming what with the clouds of heaven he came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples nations and languages should serve him does this sound like the book of revelation He's, his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom is the one which will not be destroyed so going back to Jesus, behold, he's coming with the clouds, Revelation 1-7. And every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. He, he's, he said amen in verse 6. Now he saying, even so, amen. It's more emphatic. It's yes, return, Lord Jesus. Yes, do what you've said that you would do. And then lastly, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Most of your Bibles should have this in red letters. uh I believe that is correct. I believe this is Jesus speaking. Some believe it could be the Father speaking. I'm going to explain to you why it's not, and then we'll be done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. What's happened in this passage, these short verses we've looked at? We have an image of God the Father before the throne. He is the transcendent one who was and is and is to come. The seven spirits are before his throne. They're preparing to accomplish his work uh, throughout the book of Revelation. And then the rest of it is all about Jesus. And what happens as you step down through verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, the focus, it goes real quickly from the Father to the Son because it's the revelation of who? Of Jesus. It's all about exalting Jesus. talks about who he is, talks about what he's done. And then verse 8, something amazing happens. It's the designations that are most often used for the Father, we see throughout the book of Revelation, people before the throne worshiping the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega going back to the book of Isaiah, all of these things that are used to speak of the Father, the Son now says. And what's being said right at the onset of the book of Revelation is that this Jesus who's bringing all things to end. This Jesus who is the centerpiece of the book of Revelation, this Jesus who is being revealed, he is none other than eternal God. That is the doctrine that is being laid forth. That is the point that John is making as you follow through these verses is what is true of the Father is being put forth right here in verse 8 as true of the Son. The Son is eternal God. In fact, that's how the book closes. Look at Revelation chapter 22. No one disputes that these are the words of Jesus. Revelation chapter 22, the very end. Verse 12, and behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. What did Revelation 1 say? He's going to come soon. Here he's saying, I'm coming quickly. Verse 13, I am the what? The Alpha and Omega. Omega. Beginning and end, the first and the last, just like Revelation one And then look at verse 14. Blessed are those who do, do his commandments. What did verse 3 say? We'd be blessed if we do it. Do you see how there's bookends to the book here? Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the rights eat of the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. So if you go back to Revelation 1a, I am the Alpha and Omega. Those are the first and the last um, letters in the Greek al- 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 alphabet. The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who was and who is, who is to come. What was said of the Father is now said by the Son. And then he says the Almighty. And we just don't have the time to talk about this Almighty uh, aspect. This is all through the book of Revelation, so we'll cover it in the coming weeks. But I want you to understand what is said of the Father is now said by the Son. And what Jesus has promised to do, he will fulfill. That brings us to our third and final point. The promise of God gives us motivation today. You see, the transcendence of God gives us hope today. Who Jesus is gives us a purpose today, but we need the motivation. And the promise of God is what supplies the motivation. In fact, in John 8, um, Jesus, what he does is we're in Exodus 3, uh, 14, where God says, I am who I am. Jesus says that in John 8. That's what sent the Jews through the roof because they got it. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And when he said that, they went ballistic because they thought it was heresy. He's claiming to be God. Yeah, he is. Because he is God. And that's what's happening here. Revelation 1.8 is saying, look, the same God that has kept his promises all along, Jesus is saying, I'm that God. And the promise that I'm making to you now is that I'm going to return soon. And you need to be ready for my return. And just like I have kept all of the promises before, I will keep this promise. And so you need to be ready today. And that's our motivation. Now, some of you are pressure workers. If you have a deadline, you have something due five months out, when are you going to start on it? Four months and like 29 days from now, right? You're going to wait till the 11th hour, then you're going to get it done. Some of you, you may have a sales meeting coming up this week. What are you going to do? The night before, maybe the morning of, you're going to frantically be getting ready for your sales meeting. Some of you are just pressure workers. You have to wait for the pressure to get on before you can get it done. And I hope we don't live that way when it comes to being ready for the return of Jesus Christ. Because he has promised that he is going to return. And he has promised that it could be at any moment. And if we allow that truth to sink into our hearts. It will affect the way that we live. He's not only transcendent. But he's imminent. He is going to break back into his world. And he is going to bring it to the end. That he has promised to do. So we need to close. This morning do you have. That hope that you can have in the transcendent God? Do you have the purpose that is available to those of us that are in Jesus Christ? And do you have that unshakable faith that my God is really going to return at any moment and I want to be found ready by him? Do you have that motivation to live rightly today by his grace and the power of his spirit, by his strength to live rightly today? Do you have that? Is that yours? Do you possess that? If not, remember how I went back and I said that God saw all the ways that those people would fail him, but he called him a king of priests anyways, that Jesus saw all the ways that we would fail him, yet he shed his blood anyways. That's true of, of all of us. It's true of you. God is not looking at you today saying, get yourself cleaned up and then come to me. He's saying you're hopelessly lost, but I've drawn near so that you can be saved. Quit your striving, quit your working and receive me. By faith, call out to Jesus who I have sent and be saved. But many of you here, you're already believers but it's so easy to shift from faith in the transcendent God to faith in our bank accounts, our own know-how, our own gifts and abilities. I think the greatest hindrance to knowing the blessings that come with obeying Jesus is the pride of life. We do not want to admit just how desperately we need God for every breath that we take. Pursue humility, embrace humility, welcome humility, because as we are humble before a holy God, we will know the blessings of obedience. Would you please stand with me? if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ to receive the forgiveness of sins, to become a child of God, first of all, that's our invitation to you today. Turn from your way, believe upon Jesus, and be saved. But many of you, again, you've already done that. Invitation to you is to, again, look afresh and anew at Jesus. See him high and lifted up. See him as the one that made you a kingdom of priests unto God. And say, God, what is your purpose for me today? How can I serve you today as a kingdom of priests today to bring glory to you? God has a purpose for you, believer. Your life is not aimless. But may we all, whatever state we're in, be quick to be humble. Be quick to to confess our faults, be quick to put others before ourselves. May we be quick to acknowledge our need that we might know him who supplies all of our needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. I'm going to pray and the invitation is you come as the Lord leads. I'll be down front waiting for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness to us, that you are not only a transcendent God, you're not only one who defines our, defies our ability to explain, comprehend, or box in, but you are imminent. You're near. You're right here. You're now. May we kneel before you today and know of your goodness and your grace, your love, and your mercy in our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.